For years we have dwelt in the shadows, applying our skills and knowledge in secret, speaking our truth to all who would listen, applying our trade for those in need. Now it is time to emerge into the light, wipe our eyes of dust, and venture forth into the world. Make ourselves known, and invite all who seek our secret knowledge to work and learn with us. Welcome friends and fellow seekers to the Secret Society of the Instructional Designer. Done, done, done. Make sure you keep that part in. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Clea, an instructional designer in Colorado. Hi, uh, I am Nick Noel. I'm the assistant director for educational technology at Michigan State University. Um, and I'm also, you know, just a man in a, in a room hanging out. Hi, I'm Rachel Stern Lockerman. I'm an instructional designer and I'm also in a room, but a different room. I'm Steve Widener, Manager of Instructional Design and Technology for Rocky Vista University, in a third room altogether. And I'm not in a room at all. I'm just floating in space. That's right. Clea comes to us live from a formless void somewhere in an nth dimension that we have uh, never explored and will never enter. It's a it's a strange thing. We, we didn't intend to have an extra dimensional being on our podcast, but once one presents themselves, how do you say no? Today, we'll be talking about instructional design in the wild. And by that, I mean, it, it's a very open-ended prompt. I have plenty of examples of just being a little bit too excited about learning and training design and blurting this out to people that I meet in public. Um, so my examples are going to focus on that. But I want to have it open so that anyone here, the rest of our guests, our hosts, can share you know, what makes you think of instructional design in the wild? What inspires you? What gets you to think, oh, I could try that in a work-related project or, yeah, you get the drill. Um, who would like to share first? <laughs> I guess I'll I'll share a little bit because um, this prompt reminded me of when I was studying video production in undergrad and the professors were like, okay, so keep in mind, once you do like video editing, uh, TV is ruined for you because um, you will see every single uh, editing uh, mistake. You'll see when things are out of place, like you'll see jump cuts. And then it was like, uh, and then I did and TV's ruined for me. So that happened. Um, and I, I think it's interesting that like studying design user experience design and instructional design principles kind of ruins the world for you because it's just like, why didn't anybody think about how this is, how like people have to interact with this or what this experience is like. And I don't know if people knew this, but experiences are basically all you have. Like you just keep having those all the time and it becomes very annoying. The The specific one uh, I'll mention, and then we can, we can go around the table is any kind of compliance training um, that you have to go through. And I know that's not really in the wild. It is like something made by another person for another person. And you just see like specifically the assessments. And it's just like, I'm nobody's ever going to remember any of these. And also half of these questions are completely useless for anyone to remember anyway. Like they're just random facts that don't really help you do anything. I have also had to unfortunately deal with those compliance trainings that Nick mentioned and Please, you have my sympathy, everyone who has to take them. 
um, actually, when I am talking to professors about it, let's, you know, make quality online courses, not um, I usually bring up the the compliance trainings. Like, you know, those terrible compliance trainings. Like, oh, yeah, those are terrible. I never remember anything. And I was like, so like, that's why I don't think we should just have like a bunch of random quizzes at the end of each section, because that's not really engagement. They're like, oh, yeah, like I hate those compliance trainings. Mine, it's not really in the wild as much as it is in the movie theater. So probably I am one of the only people who had this takeaway from the movie, but I would love to find other people who did. So please, you know, hit that like button or comment button or whatever exists on a podcast platform. Um, if you watch Spider-Man No Way Home and in the scene where basically Spider-Man's identity is revealed through, uh, you know, uh, Infowars-esque thing and um, he gets really upset. And he's, his mission is denied to college for some reason. And, like, he gets very upset. So he goes to the sorcerer, the Doctor Strange, and he's like, hi, is there any way to, like, wipe everyone's memory so nobody remembers of Spider-Man? And then, like, that seems pretty simple. So he starts, like, making a spell. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. No, actually, I need you to include this person. And then he's like, okay, fine. So this person. And now there's a spell. And he's like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Also this other person. And he's like, fine. So these two people... And then he's like, okay, no, 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 there's actually like four more people I need to mention. So like he loses control of the spell because like he's in the middle of trying to concentrate on it. And and then the whole movie happens um, and you can watch the rest of it. But I'm watching it and I'm just like, you know what? This is why you do a needs assessment before you start working on something, Peter. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking like how many times are you working on something that they're like, oh, it's super simple. It's super quick. You know, you can just make it happen. And then the client is like or this SME or anybody is like, no, actually, you know, you know, we need to throw in these other eight things because thinking about it, we realize that it is more complicated than it originally appeared because most things are, which is why before you do any project, the first step or one of the earliest steps should be a needs assessment. Also, most of the MCU probably just wouldn't exist if people just like stopped and thought and did a needs assessment before they like built a killer, hyper intelligent, homicidal robot, Tony. Um, so like that, that was my like spotting in the wild. And I like I talked to the people next to me. It's like, oh, my God, isn't that an amazing example of needing a needs assessment? And they were like, what's a needs assessment? So it just goes to show more people should like listen to this podcast and or like do instructional design fun things. To be fair, Doctor Strange being a doctor, uh, you know, that was clearly his first time casting that spell. He knew how to do it. It was his, his first time doing it for real because he didn't know the questions to ask Peter because he was not there saying, are you sure? Are you really sure? Do you know you don't have any loved ones or anything you need? Do you have any professional acquaintances you need to keep around? Anything? So that's just as much on Doctor Strange holding the idiot ball for that movie. I had more questions asked for when I had my wisdom teeth removed than Doctor Strange asked for changing the entire universe. <laughs> like, So you're saying this is the MCU version of when somebody's like, oh, just make a training for that. Does it really need to be a training? Do you really need a world spell? And then like after this whole scene where he breaks the universe... Um, he's like, yeah, because I really need to get into college. And he's like, wait. And he's like, okay, so you called the college admissions office and you explained the story. And he's like, well, no, I haven't tried it. And he said, you thought it would be more logical to like wipe the entire universe's brain besides for picking up the phone and calling them and seeing if they could work with you. And, and I'm just like, number one, 
very millennial. Like, I don't want to have to talk to somebody on the phone, but also at the same time, yes, Bull, you're right, Stephen, Bull Strange, Stephen, the character, as well as Steve, the the podcast host. You, you need to make sure you're asking the correct questions before you start on something or you are going to potentially break the universe, but make a very nostalgic crossover. In In ID terms, they made an interactive video instead of just a uh, web page an interactive video that you can't skip yeah exactly. you, you have to like fill out like a tiny multiple choice question at the end of it and don't forget the assessment afterwards or the evaluation afterwards for how effective you thought the training was so i don't know anything about these movies <laughs> i'm not a marvel comics or other fan um but i can absolutely relate to you know needing the right people to be involved in a project earlier um, just in the past few weeks, there was at least one example that I came across of courses almost ready to go. And then someone's boss's boss's boss needs to look at it and wants a bunch of changes. So it's about identifying your subject matter experts up front, figuring out what questions you need to ask. Absolutely, Rachel. I think a lot of, I think a lot of fictional plots wouldn't be able to play out if they had done <laughs> a needs assessment. So maybe these can be lessons learned of what can go wrong um, and inspire us to, to inspire us all to do it differently next time. But I do want to go back to what Nick shared and what Steve shared earlier. So compliance training, that's actually something that I work on pretty heavily <laughs> and, and I get it. You know, I, I want to make them better. I want to make them realistic and useful. And it's often hard to find that balance because depending on like which accreditation standards you need to follow, you do need to have certain types of review questions and ways that you format those questions and when and how you present the answers. So there's a whole lot of complexity involved there. Um, but I think, you know, no matter what design constraints you're facing, try to do the best with what you've got. We can absolutely make those compliance trainings better. And reflecting on how bad some of them were, you know, that inspires me <laughs> every day to show up with enthusiasm uh, yeah, and just a big desire to do it better for the learners. And then what Steve shared, which still angry at you for not inviting me to brunch, even on a Friday, even if I totally couldn't go, which is the case. Uh, <laughs> uh, cinnamon roll is on you next time. And they're about the size of both of our heads combined. But back to the point, um, I have also had this type of observation and I've held back from blurting out anything in public. When I was visiting a local coffee place, Ziggy's, another Colorado chain, um, there was some barista training going on. And the more experienced one was wearing a headset. Her trainee was wearing one as well. And I was so just impressed and happy <laughs> overhearing this conversation while waiting for my sugar-free toffee nut latte or whatever the heck it was. Um the trainer didn't just give instruction. She kind of prompted some recall. So she would say things like, oh, do you remember what we do next if they order this type of drink? Yep, you got it. Or, ooh, actually not quite. So just the act of, you know, not just talking to the learner to try to get them to recall what they've already learned or to think about what's the logical next step. I just love that. And I love being part of that conversation, um, even though I wasn't invited to <laughs> I will say that my current institution has done something with their compliance training that no one else has before, 
which is they let you test out of things. And that has made me so happy because we have the annual FERPA compliance training and sexual harassment compliance training and, uh, you know, six or eight other things that keep flooding by my emails and all of that. But just knowing that I can go in and test out of it. Now, the, the part that does annoy me is that it just says, you passed or you failed. So it doesn't give you the feedback as, you were perfect on this. Or, hey, you just squeaked by. You're probably going to have to do this again next time. Or something like that. That That is the one change that I would like to see. But, you know, ain't my bailiwick. So I'm trying to I'm trying to think of like other examples you encounter in your in your everyday life. And really we're we're kind of prompted to learn things on our own in a lot of different ways. So like I was thinking of any time I've had to like assemble furniture or like use any kind of like uh, appliance or, or power tool or anything like that. And the, the directions that you get, I, I found them to be maddeningly frustrating. I don't know if other people experience that, but it's just like the steps you take don't always make sense. And and the thing I find like the most frustrating is they're done in such a simplistic way and probably done to be where, you know, you use the least amount of text as possible, but it doesn't at, at any point like contextualize as to like where you're going next. And I think that would help people be able to prepare better, like in, in any of those situations, or also um, understand like what you're working towards in some, I mean, you've got the picture on the box, but like, I've, I don't know. So often I find like trying to like connect things or um, like organize like the right screws in the, in the right order. And I end up just like following these steps by step by step and getting completely lost or, um, missing pieces because I, I haven't like organized it correctly. Cause I'm not sure where the, what the next step is, you know, like, because it's so diff like, it's not written out. It's just in pictures. So it's hard to like organize it in your brain. I can, I can give two counter or two examples with that. Number one, Lego does a <laughs> brilliant job with all of their assembly instructions. Unless you have the medium gray, the light gray, the slightly darker gray, and the black that is portrayed as gray in the instructions. That that gets a little annoying. But uh, I, I had a similar issue with Ikea because I was just putting together a dresser a week or so ago, and the part that I didn't notice because I'm kind of used to Ikea only including one size of this one particular bit. No, they included two sizes. And the problem was that I had gone and assembled the whole main cabinet. I had it locked together. And it hadn't occurred to me that some of those little bolty bits had, had fit in kind of loosely. But then, of course, I'm putting the drawers together and the little bolty bits don't fit in the holes. So I have to go back to the main box and like pry out the bolty bits that were loose and bang them out and and do all of that so you know that's that's user error on my part because i assumed i'm pretty sure the instructions probably said something about hey note that there are two different sizes of this thing that you really can't tell until you actually put them next to each other 
I was just going to ask if you had read the instructions before you began, Steve, because I do feel like most IKEA instructions start out with that. Assemble the pieces flat on the floor in front of you so you know which one is what. Um, so I love that they do that. However, I usually get to like maybe the third step of assembling something from Ikea. And uh, just a side note, Ikea was basically my toy store as a child in Germany. Like we didn't have Toys R Us or Legoland. I think we maybe had Playmobil Land, but I loved Ikea and I still get inspired there sometimes. You know, sometimes it's by a hot dog, but sometimes it's by furniture design. They have both. Um, <laughs> the thing with Ikea is I think when you get to a certain stage of constructing a thing often I need a video to help me see like how to turn it around because the flat 2d reference just doesn't help me know what to do next um, so I'll look for a YouTube video I'll look for an example most of the time I do pretty well it usually involves some swearing some tears some bickering with my partner in furniture building, but we get there by the end. And then it feels like, you know, we've accomplished a small victory and saved a tiny bit of money. And now we have this nice plywood thing. <laughs> uh, we do have our headboard on for our Ikea bed frame backwards, but it still works. And so we've never changed it. And it's just been like that for years. So sometimes an instructional design it may not look the way you intended at the end, but if it doesn't hurt anyone and it stays together, then I think, you know, we learn a little bit about where we can compromise or be like, this is fine. I Mine actually is kind of like a combination of psychology and learning design. Um, so about mm, 10 years ago, I went to Disneyland for the first and only time. And um, I don't know what other people saw when they were there, but I went there and I just marveled at the IO psychology. And I was like, this is just so well like designed to turn children against their parents in this endeavor to get as much money of that of them as possible. So like you go on a themed ride and the whole thing is themed to try to keep them engaged. And then it empties into the front of the gift shop. So you need to have them walk through the entire gift shop before you can exit out onto the street that you have already paid for. Um, so like Disney has done a lot of like analysis on like what is the most effective way to either, you know, maintain a particular aesthetic or to get people to comply with particular things. So like um, he'd do things where like they'd let up set up carts when they wanted to like guide people towards specific things or he wanted to kind of teach people like hey um if you want to do this activity uh you know make sure that you do this so it was a very beautiful psychology but also learning design and he also did other things like he'd watch people and see how long it took for them to walk like before they like dropped a piece of trash on the floor and then he'd make sure there was garbage cans everywhere so that everything was kind of within reach um, because he realized that sometimes when you're designing learning, you need to adjust the person, like you need to like direct people in particular directions. And sometimes you need to adjust the environment. You can't just say like, well, this is the way we do things. And therefore that's the way we're always going to do things. You also need to be kind of aware that sometimes maybe the way you've been doing it is not always the correct way to do it, which is why like, um, certain things like, you know, if you want to, 
if you want to, there's like kind of jokes, like, how do you get like somebody angry? Like, Hey, I can't find an instructional designer in a crowd. Like, what do I do? And it's like, learning styles are not a myth. And then like, but all the learning instructional designers will like stand up and start shouting. So another one is, um, well, that's the way it's always been done. Okay. That doesn't mean that's how we should continue doing it. And when you kind of see Disney has other problems, unless they'd like to sponsor this podcast, in which case they still have problems, but I, you know, take take their money you know we always have to be thinking what is why are we doing it this way and is it the best way to do it or is it just kind of we fall into doing it this way and it's just easier than changing it to kind of keep status quo yeah i feel like that that kind of idea of like change the learner or change the environment is a useful one to look at like whenever you're getting frustrated i feel like that is a situation where someone is trying to change the learner or at the very least like built something for the learner based on the instructor's knowledge and experience rather than the the context of that learner. And so, you know, you're kind of hitting against like this unseen force that you can't even control anymore. And it becomes very difficult and, and frustrating. And, and usually when you're in environments where there is like, a trainer, they can make real-time adjustments, um, you know, in any situation where you're, or you're, you're any kind of learning environment, but in these like asynchronous environments or, you know, things where you're by yourself, you have no ability to be, a, to, to make an adjustment. You have no ability to call anybody or figure anything out on your own. And increasingly you're being directed toward, now I just sound like a, like a guy shaking his hand at the clouds like no there's nobody you can call on the phone anymore you can't talk to anybody which is funny because i would i hate talking to people on the phone i would never do it um but it is frustrating you schedule that, that call in advance yeah. well you set a text message to be like hi is now a good great. time to call i would yeah. i will take a text message over anything um and i used to hate text messages too like and now i can't imagine calling someone Ugh, so rude so you're saying if you were Spider-Man in No Way Home, you would have also like destroyed the universe instead of like picking up the phone and calling them. No, I mean, I, I don't think I would have asked anybody to help me at all. Like, I think I would have just not gone to college or gone. I mean, there's plenty of I mean, you know, there's plenty of good community colleges at that Spider-Man area, New York. That's where he lives. Um, why can't he go there? It's like you're saying you live in New York City. You can't find anywhere to go to college. Hey. Spider-Man's black and red. Queens College. He lives in Queens. Queens College colors are black and red. Spider-Man went to Queens College. It's it's officially canon. And it's just like, why is Spider-Man like, like if he goes to MIT, so like now New York is just going to get destroyed because like Spider-Man needs to get an MIT an engineering degree. Well, like, isn't what is he Batman? Doing? Um, isn't New York Batman's territory anyway? Clea, we can't get into this. Um, <laughs> like I said, I don't, I don't know these stories. In my mind, they're all the same. Yeah, I always thought Gotham was real New York. Um, no, so I'm gonna that, need that to wasn't like... like a nickname. That was like really what the city was called. It's... I'm gonna need to marinate on this for a while. Um, but I did want to say you offhandedly man- mentioned another good example of instructional design, or maybe it's just user experience design in the wild, which is when a company offers texting support rather than just phone support, um, because my partner and I will flip a coin to decide which of us has to make the phone call sometimes. We both hate it. Um, and I think I I got the coin when I had to call Best Buy about a warranty on something. 
and I was dreading it. And I opened their website and I saw a text us option and it was like, you know, the heavens opened and angels sang and it was the best. And, you know, I wonder if they did any research on that, like, ooh, we're trying to target millennial customers and they hate the phone. So what if we add this chat option? Like, I am curious what influenced their decision to include that in their customer service design. I love it. <laughs> so um, another concept of like building skills that why do we have these skills, but now we have them is um, one very niche group kind of came out during the pandemic and snagging vaccine appointments, particularly in New York City. Um, and it was people who had spent their lives trying to get concert tickets on Ticketmaster. Um, because like you have to have fastest fingers of typing in your address, your, your number, like all of your relevant information to try to snag that appointment. Um, and like many of the friends I'd had were like, oh, I'm snagging appointments. I got appointments for my parents. I got appointments for my grandparents. Like I'm good, but these are skills I've honed because these are skills they've developed. And that's not really an example of like quality instructional design, but it is an example of how learning permeates through our lives. So you developed skills getting Ticketmaster tickets or lottery, you know, like if you're attempting to get any kind of John Oliver or SNL tickets, what have you, um, and you were able to kind of move that knowledge to other things. So like, I think a problem with bad instructional design and bad learning experiences is that you only really get good at building a very niche, narrow uh, view of, of how to quickly click that next button instead of like, here is actually a skill or a knowledge base that I can expand and build. But I think we're now going to um, move on to the question hat or. Did anybody have anything they wanted to finish up with? I, yeah, I had, I had one thing I wanted to tag in with that, that comes to mind about this. Yesterday I went to my first game convention in like 15 years or so. And this is one of those great examples of people getting the skills to do things like a play a given game and b teach other people how to play the game because you know people who aren't necessarily the professional you know hype people for a game they're only going to be teaching people how to play the game every so often and if they learned how to play the game from someone who wasn't terribly good at explaining it, then their effort to explain it may still be just the same way the other person did. Yeah, and I want to end with uh, one final thought that kind of speaks to both of those. Sometimes looking for instructional design or learning in the wild gets us to think about, ooh, people are doing this and they may not necessarily know if they're not instructional designers, right? Like, Last week, I think it was, I was in the grocery store. We were checking out. My husband used to work in a grocery store many, many years ago. So we memorized the code for bananas. I think it's 4011. Yep. Uh, and the grocery clerk came over and showed him how he memorized it. And I blurted something out about spaced practice and how he could quiz himself and his colleagues during the day. And I, I kind of had some regrets. Um, he kind of just smiled and laughed, but... <laughs> I'm still glad I got it out there because I think anything that we can do to show people how their skills, whether it's fast fingers in booking tickets uh, or something else, can lead to, you know, transferable skills in a totally new context. I think that's always a benefit pointing that out to learners um, because many of my own careers of past of your <laughs> were wildly different. But now I can kind of be like, yeah, that makes sense of how I would 
turn all of that into instructional design because it's all about learning and being in the world and how to how to do that. So yeah, that's what I want to end on. Alrighty, so got a question from the question hat. Uh, I will mention if anybody else has a question, feel free to uh, email us with it. Okay, so for the group, uh, what is a skill you wish you had learned? You wish we'd learned before we got into instructional design? Sure. I got one. Um, for me, it's just learning how to learn. Like, <laughs> And sometimes I hear this in other, you know, learning science or instructional design podcasts. Oh, man, skills are changing every single year. You know, what's the latest new trend? What's the upskilling that people have to do? We're always going to be chasing that, and it's always going to be different. And of course, how people learn is still evolving, but there are some basic principles that now have been researched, have been, you know, evidentiary to some degree. So I think if I had learned earlier in my life, and even still now, although now I, I do think I've got a good leg up on it, just how to learn, you know, not just cram everything into once, not just try to memorize it verbatim, um, take opportunities to pause and think about what other things in my life connect to the new thing that I'm learning. Uh, I would have just loved to to know about that earlier so I could incorporate it into my own learning and not been so frustrated in, you know, elementary, high school, and even college. I've got two things. One maybe a little too revelatory for a public podcast, but um, I wish I'd been able or, or been more practiced in intentional communication before even starting my career. And then especially now, because there's a lot of things that when you, unless you explicitly say something in general, there's so much things that are open to interpretation when you're dealing with different people that like you may think you have made a point and then have not like, you know, getting better at saying explicitly the feedback you want by when and in what format I am very bad at. And it, I think people I work with can be frustrated by it. And I get frustrated too, because I assume that they are going to, if they haven't given me something, they don't have anything to give me and they maybe interpret like, well, you never actually asked for it. You just gave us the thing. Um, and so I think that's, that's something that's um, problematic in, in terms of the communication style and then definitely too much information, but like realizing that it is actually very difficult for me emotionally to ask people to do things that they don't necessarily want to do or wouldn't normally do. And so, you know, for all the people pleasers out there who became instructional designers because you want to help people, uh, moving into supervisory positions are whoo, going to be rough for you. That's going to be a journey. So if you don't have one, get a therapist now and be working on that for the next two years. Um, and, and then confirm. the other thing. Can confirm. <laughs> Very relatable. <laughs> And the the other thing I'll say is I wish I'd spent a a little bit more time understanding statistics and just general mathematics concepts. Like when it comes to interpreting data, understanding kind of what those numbers mean is, is kind of difficult and how to um, code and interpret, uh, especially when it comes to 
the more um, quantitative aspects of data analysis. Qualitative stuff, whoo, man, let me at it. I got that stuff down. Quantitative, when it's like gross numbers, no thank you. Don't understand it. Going to have to think about it for a while. So I'm actually working on a statistics course right now, and we spend some time making just statistics puns back at each other. Um, and I noticed that Clea wrote, uh, Rachel can help you. Rachel, I love statistics. So how do you else do you know if you're having fun? Because you don't know if you're having a significant amount of fun. So um, if anybody wants to talk statistics. Rachel, and that make... literally hurt me to hear you say, like, it I don't know so if you're good. having fun unless you can quantify it. Because <laughs> you're a person with a soul, Rachel. <laughs> Sorry. It's a bit of an exaggeration. Sorry. Fun. Anyway. Um, Everybody's so. different, and I need to realize that. So it's okay that some people do statistics and some people are are different. Like it's okay. It's like I know you didn't are mean this, but what I heard different? was like it's okay that some people do statistics and some people are stupid. Oh, <laughs> so some people do statistics and some people are different than me, and I need to understand that because otherwise I'd just be like, why is everyone getting very excited about statistics? It's statistically significant, everybody. Don't you understand? Don't you like? It's like. If you're like very excited, I'm assuming about like the MCU and the DCU and you just like go on this like long rant about like, and then the other person is like, ma'am, this is a Wendy's. So like that, <laughs> but everyone I talk to about statistics. Um, so it's not just you. It's like, everyone's like, why is this person talking about statistics so much? So I'm working with a statistics professor and I'm just like, I found my person. I mean, if she's listening to this, hi. Um, I will take statistics over Spider-Man just in case we're we're giving that option. Okay, just just to just to know, like if you have a choice. In that clear, we'll take being stabbed over being shot. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to live in England, so that makes sense. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so a skill that I kind of like wish I had was I wish that I was like better at um working with people on um. Things that I do not find as interesting. So like if I'm working with somebody on something that I just do not find interesting and it's like I feel like my brain is being stabbed, I'm just not giving my best work. And I wish I could just like look at it from a different perspective. Now, thankfully, that happens very rarely because, you know, I love everything about instructional design. So it doesn't happen. But it does happen sometimes where I'm just like, this is this is not interesting to me at all. And like, I don't understand why we have, we should be doing this at all. This doesn't seem like a valuable use of anyone's time or effort. Sometimes I, I, I so I wish I was better at like being more adaptable to like when I don't find things interesting and also um, looking to like how I could find things interesting, even in those uninteresting things. But as you can tell, none of those things involve statistics. Because statistics is the most fun. <laughs> I'm just going to say the skill that I still wish I had was being able to ask for help. Mm. All you folks out there who are like that and, and nodding your heads, yes, I'm absolutely one of you. And I, whether it is a matter of me being stubborn and going, I can totally do this by myself or, but I don't want to bother them. Meanwhile, I'm telling all my faculty that my motto is bother me. Mm -hmm. And I keep telling them this, and I keep reminding them that if they have questions, concerns, things like that, that yes, I am absolutely someone they can bother about these things, and I am happy to help. I'm just not great at asking for it myself. Hobbler's son has no shoes. 
Like I find that instructional designers sometimes are the, because uh, we talk so much about cognitive load and about the importance of catching learners and supporting learners before they expend too much cognitive load on frustration um, mm-hmm. so that they're no longer able to learn. Often we're just like, no, no, no. I mean, that's that's true, but we're just going to power through it and, you know, like deal with it ourselves and just be frustrated ourselves. So like, I often find that uh, this is evident in many professions that like, the thing you know the most about, you're often the worst about doing for yourself. Like they say, doctors make the worst patients. Instructional designers will often not take into account their own cognitive load when designing learning. That's another common phrase. Um, but that's just another thing to bear in mind. I I do think there's always, and this is this is probably a topic for another time, but but in general, there's this tension with design that comes between like the cognitive load and then the understanding that like there needs to be a little bit of difficulty for it to be satisfying to complete. So like if things are too easy, it's boring. If things are too hard, it's frustrating. And you know, that's what flow theory is talking about is like this perfect state where you are engaged enough because it's hard enough, but it's also like able to accomplish. And so if you put too many things in too many release valves where people can just ask for help or get it immediately, then it becomes too easy and it's disengaging or they're not actually learning it. They're just experiencing it. And then it's leaving because it doesn't seem valuable. Um, That's a conversation for another time, probably. Yeah. But I think um, all of us can kind of relate to, you know, we are often the helpers. And so asking for help ourselves, it just feels weird or it feels like we shouldn't. It's Um, a sign of weakness. (laughs) But the the good news is, and we know this because we're instructional designers, skills can be taught, skills can be learned. I used to be much more reluctant about asking for help, but I've seen various counselors and therapists for years now. And after a while, it does become more second nature. Feels very uncomfortable at the start. But the good news is, you know, like any skill, you'll get to a point where it's more comfortable. So I'll be rooting for you, Steve. I'll I'll be asking you more often, how can I help you? You know, sometimes just um, coaching the folks that are around you to ask the question differently rather than like, oh, bother me. Just just ask how I can help you. And and sometimes subtle wording differences can can help there, too. But listeners, let us know what skill you are struggling to learn, what skill you want to learn, what else you want to hear from us on the show. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Questions or comments can be sent to secretsocietyotid at gmail.com. That's secretsocietyotid at gmail.com. <laughs>